Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everyone. It's Friday, and what a relief. We're not going to lie. This was not our finest week. You know that feeling when you're juggling one too many things as it is, and then you remember you have to juggle four more things, and you want to scream in a pillow for (laughs) as long as you think you're able? It was basically that kind of a week. That said, there were, as always, some highlights, and one of those for us was talking this week with our special guest, Jacob Helberg, the author of The Wires of War, a book about China's ambitions that Kirkus Reviews described as, quote, unnervingly convincing evidence that time is running out in the gray war with the enemies of freedom. That sounds dark, though this book is both illuminating and constructive, and we think you're going to enjoy hearing from Helberg. Before we get to that, though, let's take a quick look at a couple of this week's news stories. The Treasury Department issued a report today on one of tech's fastest-growing sectors, ransomware. Federal regulators identified over $600 million in transactions from January to July, a 40% increase over all of 2020. However, the real number for 2021 may be much, much bigger. According to the Treasury Department, over $5.2 billion in Bitcoin transactions this year could be ransomware payments. While a coalition of 30 governments issued a joint statement yesterday underlining their resolve to fight ransomware, one government was suspiciously absent, Russia, where ransomware gangs are still, quote, operating in the permissive environment that they've created there, FBI Deputy Director Paul Abate stated last month. Absent Russian cooperation, the Treasury Department is warning private industry that it will hold companies to account for failing to properly vet cryptocurrency transactions with blacklisted countries such as Iran and North Korea, as well as sanctioned individuals, companies, and crypto wallets. While Treasury's stance may slow the flow of ransomware payments, it could also hamper the efforts of crypto companies like Coinbase to create a separate federal agency to regulate cryptocurrency. The plot thickens. The Washington Post's Steven Zeitschik had an interesting piece today on the conclusion of last night's playoff battle between the San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers. In the bottom of the ninth, with two outs, first base umpire Gabe Morales called a third strike on a checked swing by San Francisco Giants second baseman Wilmer Flores, ending the Giants' season and propelling the Dodgers forward to play the Atlanta Braves for the National League title. The call immediately ignited a firestorm of controversy. Replays of the at-bat appeared to show Flores check his swing. Clearly, robots have the capacity to reduce the subjectivity of balls and strikes. And Major League Baseball is testing robo-umpires with a Denmark-based startup called Trackman in baseball's Atlantic League. But the Post's Zeitschik wonders whether reducing baseball to ones and zeros would sap some of the life out of the game. What would baseball be without umpires yelling, you're out, in a dust-up at home plate? Who will managers be able to chew out if there are no men in black? Still, perhaps we are getting ahead of ourselves. As it stands, the MLB rulebook does not contain an official definition for a checked swing, but defines a swing as, quote, an attempt to strike at the ball. It is the decision of the umpire as to whether an attempt was made or not. As powerful as robots undoubtedly are, Major League Baseball needs to come up with one standard for computers to stick by. 
and that could be a long time in coming indeed. Coming up, our interview with Jacob Helberg, whose book, The Wires of War, just came out. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Strictly VC is brought to you by Tegas. Don't start diligence from scratch on every new name. Instead, get a head start with Tegas. It's the only platform that offers instant access to 20,000-plus investor-led expert calls on public and private companies, from seed stage to IPO. See why so many leading investors rely on Tegas to scale their research. Try it for yourself at www.tegas.co slash strictlyvc. That's www.tegas.co slash strictlyvc. And now our interview with Jacob Helberg, who is affiliated with the Brookings Institution, a former senior advisor to Stanford's Cyber Policy Institute, and a former news lead with Google. Helberg is also part of a power couple, married to operator and investor Keithra Boy, who is currently a partner with the venture firm Founders Fund and the co-founder of a new startup called Open Store. We talked with Helberg this week about how and when he became so focused on what he sees as a gray war between the U.S. and China. We also talked about how startups and investors and the private industry more broadly in the U.S. can more effectively partner with government to push back. Jacob Helberg, so, so great to have you here. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I was just reading the beginnings of your book, and I think it's so interesting and spot on in lots of ways. But let's take a step back and tell me a little bit more about you. So I was just telling you that you and I were in touch a year and a half ago. I know you were involved maybe in some way with Pete Buttigieg's campaign, but even going back maybe to your startup in 2015, is that where you became interested in China-U.S. relations? Yeah, 2015 was when I worked on a startup called GeoQuant. And what were you doing at GeoQuant? And why did you start that company in the first place? So I was part of the founding team. The startup focused on combining software with political science models to measure and track geopolitical risk in a quantitative way. The focus was fascinating and the startup is still around. And it basically gave me a really interesting first experience on how technology could be used to better understand geopolitics and how geopolitics can better be understood at a systems level. And then I saw that you transitioned pretty quickly to Google as a policy advisor. How did that move come about? Yeah, so I started a new position had opened up at Google and the position focused on a really interesting domain space that basically was focused on helping the company figure out and develop a, a new policy architecture for Google's global news policies. And at the time, it was really fascinating because I joined in November of 2016, which was the dawn of when the issue of fake news and foreign interference and misinformation really rose to the forefront of the tech industry. And so it was an incredibly exciting opportunity, really gave me an incredibly acute understanding of how these new emerging geopolitical dynamics were catching the tech industry in the crosshairs and how tech companies were all of a sudden being thrust into the middle of the geopolitical great game between the US, China, Russia, and a handful of other players. And it's interesting that you didn't end up delving more deeply into US-Russia relations. 
Yeah, as I talk in the book, I like to describe the current geopolitical rivalry and struggle between democracies and autocracies as a gray war. And in the book, I delve into a little bit of detail about how there's two fronts to this war. There is what I call the front end software battle to control what people see on their screens. And that's obviously the side of the gray war that has a lot of different players. And Russia was one of the first movers in this space with respect to foreign interference. And there is what I call the back end hardware front of the war. And that is focused on the physical infrastructure of the internet. And ultimately, one of the reasons that the book primarily focuses on China is because the most decisive area of the gray war is going to be about controlling that physical internet infrastructure. If you control the infrastructure of the internet, you can basically control or compromise anything that runs on top of it. If you control the back end, you can compromise and control the front end. And so to me, that's why that is where the outcome is going to get played out. And that's why as a country, we should be placing a far more substantial efforts Just to be clear, by back end, you mean things like cellular phones, satellites, fiber optic cables, 5G networks, artificial intelligence? Well, yes. I mean, artificial intelligence is interesting because it's obviously a combination of software and hardware, but you're right. It's basically fiber optic cables, 5G satellite, low orbit satellites, and so forth. Jacob, because you focus on this latter piece that doesn't get enough attention, I think your book is going to get a lot of attention. I mean, one thing that you raise right away are China's attacks on India. Was that last year or the year before? Yeah, yeah, that was last year. Yeah, where they took out power in a city of 20 million, as you say, shut down trains, stock market, forced hospitals to rely on emergency generators. I'm curious to know if you think we've seen anything like that here and we haven't fully embraced what happened. Well, one of the reasons why governments are leaning so heavily in these new gray zone tactics is because sometimes it's really hard to do attribution. And we have a system where a lot of our internet is run by private companies. Unlike in China, we actually have private companies that are completely separated from the U.S. government. A few dynamics are at work. The first is because of our privatized system, there are certain market and legal incentives for private companies to under-report cybersecurity breaches. Number one, because if you're a company that experiences a cybersecurity breach, you are a victim as well as sometimes can be held to be a culprit because you can be held to be negligent in certain cases. So companies sometimes are very wary of reporting cybersecurity breaches unless they're truly significant. And number two, it is really genuinely simply hard to do attribution sometimes. And so it's not impossible that we have seen similar types of cyber attacks in the U.S. than the types of cyber attacks that were carried out in India. I would certainly hope not. But we do know that we have had substantial cyber attacks in the U.S. Obviously, our energy, you know, many people from the intelligence community have over the years warned and issued a lot of concern over the integrity of our energy grid. The Office of Personal Management has obviously been hacked, which is important because that basically means that China now has a list of a lot of government employees that have access to top secret information. The list is very long, but if I could just add one more point on the India hack, I think the reason that that cyber attack was so historically significant is because it it was a forewarning to every American that if this gray war were ever to turn hotter, it could potentially be one of the first wars that we have ever experienced since the Revolutionary War, where we actually see significant 
physical destruction on our homeland carried out by a foreign actor. With the exception of 9-11 and with the exception of the Civil War, which was an internal war, we've never seen a foreign power actually reach our, our shores and carry out mass destruction. And here with the cyber attack that was carried out on India, it's truly alarming because you could imagine a scenario where if the, our relationship with China really went south, we would have to make sure that our nuclear power plants are awfully safe. I'll just put it that well. Jacob, how should we respond to this threat? For example, the government has taken a very strong position against Huawei and its bid to build infrastructure in the United States. You point out that companies like Zoom have a lot of Chinese employees and potential exposure to Chinese intelligence. Where do we draw the line and how does the government marshal a response that also protects the rights of businesses? So I'm so happy you bring up this question because that is such an important question for the critical juncture that we find ourselves in currently, especially with the looming risk of a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. As I discussed in the book, I'm a very big proponent of the idea of the U.S. government establishing an outbound CFIUS framework. Just for context for listeners, the U.S. government currently has what's called a CFIUS framework, which basically provides the U.S. government with the ability to review and potentially block any inbound investments from a foreign country into the United States on grounds of national security. So, for example, if the Chinese government wanted to buy JFK Airport, that would probably get reviewed by CFIUS and it would probably get blocked on grounds of national security. Likewise, if they wanted to buy Apple, for example, completely hypothetically, that would probably also get reviewed by CFIUS and blocked on grounds of national security. That has been in place for quite some time and it's actually incredibly useful. A recent case that I actually talk about in the book is the US CFIUS has forced a Chinese conglomerate to divest from an LGBTQ dating app called Grindr, also on grounds of national security. And so the basic idea would be to apply the same framework for outbound investments. So basically give the U.S. government the tools to review on grounds of national security any investment from the United States to outside of the United States and particularly to China. Because over time, as we've seen, when American companies pour billions of dollars into China, that can sometimes pose some real problems for the United States. How realistic do you think that is? A huge issue you've pointed out in this book, and I've heard you and Keith in a podcast talking about this, is just the financial incentives trumping the longer-term interests of the country with, with regard to the NBA, with regard to movie studios, with regard to venture capitalists who've made a lot of money in China. I see the merits of what you're proposing. I'm just wondering, do you think we would ever actually see this happen? Absolutely. There are actually already proposals making their way through the halls of Congress that are basically trend in that direction and that are somewhat analogous to what I'm suggesting. So I think these ideas are very much on the horizon. I think the question of timing as to when they're going to be pressing issues that are going to be pressing enough in order to be prioritized by Congress and actually get the kind of support needed to make it through and land on the president's desk. I think a lot of that might actually be driven by a crisis, because obviously in Washington, a lot of things happen in moments of crisis, unfortunately. But if Taiwan's Minister of Defense is correct that China intends to invade Taiwan by 2025, 
that's really soon. And if China did make a move to invade Taiwan in the next 24 months, that would almost guarantee that you're going to see a whole suite of bills making their way through Congress. Everything from investments in semiconductors to incentives for companies to reshore their supply chains out of China to an outbound CFIUS framework. I think you're going to see a lot of bills like that start making their way through Congress. I certainly hope so. I mean, just using, uh, it's apparently a terrible analogy, but the gun control, Congress obviously is not always so quick to respond to crises. One of the things I thought was really interesting was the way in which you tried to frame this away from the idea that U.S. versus China is a competition. I think that we tend to think that everyone's going to play by the rules, but it doesn't seem as if the Chinese are operating that way. Yeah, I think this is actually a really important point. In the tech industry, A lot of the times you hear VCs and founders talk about first principles and the importance of first principles. And I think that this is actually an analogous case of first principles for foreign policy. I think nomenclature here really matters because when you say that it's a competition, first of all, you are communicating the embedded assumption that you can afford to lose. Because when you're in a competition, you can afford to win or lose the tennis match. And it's not the end of the world if you lose a tennis match. We compete with the Germans and the Japanese commercially all the time. And if Toyota sells more cars than General Motors, it's really not that big of a deal. It's, you know, that's the marketplace. We operate on a level playing field along rules that we mutually abide by. And that's totally fine and fair game. The reason that I actually think that the word war is much more accurate and apt for the current set of circumstances with China is because because we're talking about a political struggle. It's not just an economic you know, struggle. It really is a political struggle. The outcome of this struggle is about the political survival of our system. When the survival of your system is on the line, the correct word is it's a war. It's not a competition because... It means that when you're in a war, every major policy initiative, foreign and domestic, has to to be assessed against an overriding objective to win. And it gives you a certain level of mental clarity about how to prioritize certain things that I think is really necessary in order to treat this challenge with the level of determination and urgency that's needed to actually produce a successful outcome. And the other thing is that when you are in a war, you are much more willing to absorb short-term costs and sometimes potentially sacrifice in order to produce a successful result. And an example of this is during World War II, we had a real mobilization effort where General Motors was building tanks and airplanes. We really mobilized as a country. Here, obviously, we're not asking Apple to build aircraft carriers, but one of the short-term costs that I think we need to seriously start thinking about is how much is it going to cost for us to move our supply chains out of China? Because that's going to cost money and it's going to cost effort. And there's no question that doing that's going to be hard. But I think that ultimately, on balance, the potential cost of us being cut off from access to our supply chains is so high that it's worth the short-term, relatively lower cost of putting in the effort, energy, and time to figure out how to get supply chains out of China now before it's too late. Do you think we can afford to do this if the United States and Europe are not on the same page with regard to China? Because France and Germany, for example, are very interested in striking all sorts of trade deals with China And the United States is much more reluctant, and it seems as if there's 
a little bit of uh, discontinuity there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because Germany is strongly incentivized to have a much more pro-China friendly policy because the German automobile industry is very influential in Germany and they obviously sell billions of dollars worth of automobiles to China. And in France, the luxury industry in France is, is very big and powerful and they also sell a lot of goods to China, but it's not an industry that actually is as labor intensive as manufacturing. And so in France, I think it's a bit more of a philosophical desire to have what Macron calls strategic autonomy. And so for them, I think being able to sit across a table from the Chinese makes them feel empowered that they are strategically autonomous from the United States. These are incentives that are probably addressable from an American standpoint. Germany cares about automobiles, but it also cares about other things. Europe is a continent that has a long tradition that dates back to the Enlightenment movement of a desire to defend certain values, including human rights. And France takes a lot of pride in those values because obviously the values of the Enlightenment in part emanated from France, from a lot of French authors and thinkers. So I hope that there is a time and place when a conversation can be had with Europeans to encourage them that it really does make a lot of sense and it is in their long-term best interest to actually come around on a lot of these issues. Jacob, you talk in the book about this decoupling of economic foreign policy from national security objectives dating back to the Cold War. Now you're suggesting sort of an outbound CFIUS program, moving the supply chains here. Just wondering, what other kind of incentives do you think private industry needs to wean itself off of seeing China as the next great market? Well, I think ultimately a lot of the programs that have worked in the past often boil down to carrots and sticks. And so I think having a combination of those things where there are areas where certain penalties are applied to disincentivize doing, engaging in highly sensitive investments in China, and at the same time, incentivize and reward other types of behavior, trading with other countries that are friendly countries that do not pose risks to the, to the US or, or democracy, I think is probably going to be the mix that's going to be successful and resonate with the business community because no industry wants to operate on just sticks. I think everyone needs positive incentives. And so I think finding that right mix is going to be uh, the key. Right, right. Interesting. I also think it's important, and you make this distinction that we're in a battle with the regime in China, not the people of China. Unfortunately, that message hasn't gotten through to everyone. Obviously, we've seen a lot of rage against people of Asian heritage in the country. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on how we conduct this gray war while also protecting our Chinese citizens here and Chinese American citizens here. Yeah, that's such an important point because the very thing that we're defending is the idea of America. President Clinton used to eloquently say that America isn't just a country, it's an idea. And and I think part of that idea is the idea that you can come from anywhere in the world and pursue your God-given potential and work hard and be treated with dignity in the United States. My grandparents were certainly a testament to that. They were Holocaust survivors that had no education and their family were slaughtered in the Holocaust and they moved here without anything really. They could barely speak the language, but through their hard work and through the incredible kindness and the welcoming attitude of the community that they arrived in, in Ohio, they were able to actually build a very positive life for themselves. 
And I think it's really worth repeating. When I talk about our great war, and I think in our national debates about our issues with China, at the end of the day, this really is not about anything that has to do with the Chinese people or Chinese culture. It really has to do with a political regime and the CCP. And that part of why we're on the right side of this equation is that the people that have suffered the most at the hands of the CCP are the Chinese people. And I think it's important to remember that Uyghurs, Tibetans, and political dissidents are Chinese people, are Chinese nationals too, even though they're treated as third-class citizens. And those are the types of people that we also need to keep in mind because obviously Chinese state news media will often try to promote the narrative that any talk of a hard stance against China is racist. And it's really important to make that distinction. You've talked about this book as a wake-up call in the same vein as Rachel Carson's Silent Spring or Ralph Nader's Unsafe at Any Speed. It's a very powerful argument, but the difference now is that people don't read. So <laughs> how, do you, how do you communicate this message beyond a book? Are there yes. political parties that are embracing this message? Are you going to create a social media campaign? Well, that's why I have conversations like these. <laughs> <laughs> But I think as someone that is temperamentally extroverted, one of the things that I was looking forward to the most in this whole intellectual exercise was actually, after completing the book, being able to go out and talk to people about it. I like debates. I like exchanges of ideas. And I wrote the book because I genuinely really care about the country and the idea of America that I grew up with and have learned to love. And obviously, my husband and I just had two kids, so I also care about the future of the country and the, the world that our kids are going to grow up in. And so to me, it's a work of passion and being able to talk about it with real world people at the end of the day, I think is something that a lot of scholars in the foreign policy space don't do enough. Well, your timing uh, couldn't be better. As you point out yourself in the book, you were thinking about this, and of course, other people were thinking about this well ahead of the coronavirus, but I do think it put into perspective for everyone just how vulnerable we are to the shortcomings of globalization. Yeah, our country really has put itself in a pretty precarious position. And it's not just us, the Europeans are also in this. But the bad news is that we're very dependent on China. The good news is that everybody else is also dependent on China, so we're not alone. <laughs> because, because, I mean, because China is the factory floor of the world, so it's not just us that lack an industrial base. It's the Europeans. It's a lot of other countries. And so the reason that's good news is that this is a problem for enough other countries that we might be able to find a creative collective solution. I certainly hope so. Well, Jacob, we don't want to keep you too long. It's been really a treat talking to you. And I hope that everyone goes out and buys this book because I do think it's it's obvious in ways, but it's also just... It's very readable. Yeah. And it puts a fine, fine point on the uh, very daunting challenges we face ahead. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. And thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.